One of the TV shows that can be quite heartwarming at times is called Undercover Boss. Uh, If you've watched that, it's when a CEO or owner of a company pretends to be an employee so that they can get an inside look at their company, maybe, you know, being trained to work at a store that is part of a larger uh, corporation. And sometimes they are impressed with an employee to such a degree they decide to reward them, the, the employee's work ethic or attitude or patience stands out to them and when it comes time for the reveal they find out who this person is that's actually the owner of the company there are some special rewards I read about the owner of Great Wolf Resorts who promoted one employee and gave her six months leave to be with her young children and another employee paid for a knee surgery and Another paid for flying lessons and actually put another employee's child through college for just doing their job and doing it well. Hebrews 11.6 says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It doesn't fill in all the blanks of how he rewards or when he rewards, but God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek. In other words, they just do their job, if you will, as a a believer, a follower of Christ. And today we meet such a woman in the Old Testament who is unnamed, but she simply does what a Christian should do, which is to live generously. 2 Kings 4 verse 8 through 10 to begin with. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who comes often is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. This woman of Shunem is, uh, is called, well, literally the word is great, and the context has to kind of tell us, is this, is this great as in prominence, or is it great in terms of wealth? But it could be both, but this woman seems to be wealthy. She and her husband, uh, later on we see, have reapers who are working for them. They have servants, so we assume that she is indeed a bit more well-to-do, like they're running a farming operation, not just a sole operator of a of their land, subsisting. Elisha. Uh, Elisha's ministry as a prophet was itinerant, that is, he traveled around and went town to town and did a lot of walking, and he would show up to minister spiritually wherever he was. So it was really refreshing to come to a town and, and somebody offers him a meal. This woman had done that, and then again the next time and the next time and the next time, And it's even possible when it says a meal that it kind of meant the evening meal and a night's stay because in ancient Near Eastern culture, without hotels and motels, if you arrived in a town and you were a visitor, you would kind of hang out at the village square, the town square, and someone was kind of culturally obligated to to take you in. So 
they did that for a while, and uh, this woman, and we assume her husband, really appreciated the prophet, so that after a number of visits, this woman suggests to her husband, you know, honey, what if we just, like, built a room for Elisha when he comes through? On, on, on top of our house, it, it says there's a small room on the roof. Now, roofs in ancient Israel were flat, kind of like we saw in chapter 1, the flat roof that King Ahaziah fell through the lattice and injured himself. And the uh, roof kind of served like an um, outdoor deck many times, but you could actually build an additional room on, on the top. And so she suggests to her husband, let's, let's build a room and, and put a bed and a table and a chair, lamp. And she evidently got her way because just in the first line of verse 11, you see, one day when Elisha came, he went up to his room, his room. So this becomes really his room whenever he comes there. It's, it's such a great thing, this woman and her generosity, her hospitality. Uh, it's, it's one thing to give somebody a meal. It's kind of best western plus if they get to stay there for a night but it is generosity plus hospitality to actually build on a room to your house so that they can uh, stay there whenever they come by now we could uh, we could pass this off that that's easy for her uh, she's wealthy and she was perhaps easy this, this was extra money maybe for them, but she had the same heart actually of, of another widow. If you, if, you, if you know the story of Elijah, the predecessor of Elisha, uh, he actually experienced something very similar. Uh, in 1 Kings 17, it says that during a famine, Elijah came to the little town of Zarephath. And uh, it's a time of famine, and she, he's hungry, and, and he talks to a woman who's outside gathering sticks and says, can you make me a meal of some bread? I need some water and I need some bread. And she says, really, I, I, I don't think I can because it's a famine and I am going to make this last meal for myself and my son and then we're just going to die. This is all we have. And Elijah urges her to go ahead and make the meal. And, and she does. And you know the miracle that God did for her. The oil and the flour never ran out. He was, God was doing a constant miracle for them in order to, to completely supply for her until the end of the famine. And Elisha stayed with them as well. Hospitality. And so this woman here in 2 Kings 4 is in good company with that woman of 1 Kings 17. And so she says to her husband, Let's build a room. And so it involved some money. It involved, you know, getting a contractor maybe to come and build uh, the thing. Go to the woodworker and, and have him make a, another bed and another table and, and a chair and, and a lamp. Go to the hardware store, get a lamp, a little vessel for a little extra oil and, and put some curtains in the window. I made up the curtains, but I just think a woman like that would have certainly thought of that. Too hospitable generous women, one of them poor, one of them wealthy, but they have the same heart. Because financial status is irrelevant to generosity. It's a, it's a heart issue. Generosity is the same regardless of ability. 
the poor widow, the wealthy widow. I, I kind of imagine those two women being good friends in heaven about now. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he was uh, talking about uh, an offering he was going to come by to get uh, for the church in, in Jerusalem that was going through famine and persecution. And so he had sent them instructions in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and he said, on the first day of every week, Sunday, that's when they met, on the first day, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. You know, regular, but proportionate giving. And that's really kind of the, uh, the foundation of what, why we take an offering. You see the little boxes back there, and, and most of you are, are, you participate in that, and, and that's great. It's, it's the idea that we would, we would proportionately give. So, so generosity is the heart, but obviously there's a, an issue of scale or, or proportion according to ability. But generosity itself is the heart condition. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul continued to write to the same church about the same issue of the offering, um, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are like our most full exposition of what it means to give generously uh, as a, in, in the New Testament age. And I think every Christian who is serious about imitating the, the, the generosity of God should read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 you know, slowly. Paul was traveling to all these different churches that he had planted, kind of a ministry like Elijah, moving around. And, and so as he went to these various churches that, whose names we have, you know, Philippi and Corinth and, and Thessalonica, he was also gathering an, uh, this offering for the people of Jerusalem. And as he was writing this second letter to the Corinthians, he is seeking to motivate the Corinthians to give like the Macedonians had given. And the Macedonian church was actually the church at Philippi. So it's interesting the way he describes that generosity is not dependent on wealth. The Macedonians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So even though they're coming from a place of poverty, there's a wealth of generosity for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So here they were with a heart saying, I, I, never mind what I have, this, I'm going to give, I don't know what it means to give beyond your ability, but they did. And so the point at the end of chapter 9 was, for anyone generous, now he who supplies seed to the sower, this is getting to the issue of what does God do? What is his rewarding plan? He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. I think that's a very important uh, clarification of what it means that God is a rewarder because it's not just financial that God will then give you more money but he's saying that he will reward you financially is it spiritually is it emotionally but it's a direct promise of God that when we are generous he will give us enough to be more generous and continue to be generous he does not promise we will be wealthy and that's where this 
uh, diverges from the prosperity theology teachers, which are essentially motivated by greed. This is not about giving to get wealthy, but you give and God will enable you to continue to give. In every way, so God rewarded this woman in a very special way. Verses 11 and following. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. And he said to his servant Gehazi, call this Shunammite, this woman. So he called her and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, to his servant, tell her, you, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she replied, I have a home among my own people. Uh, Whatever it was that Elisha was offering, her response seems to indicate, I have everything I need. No, there's nothing you can do for me. Verse 14, Elisha doesn't give up. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. And Gehazi said, well, she she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. That's too great to imagine. But But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. What a reward is it the Pizza Hut commercial that says you can't out-pizza the hut? Well, you can't out-generous God. She made a simple room for Elisha, and God gave her the child that she had longed for and could never have. God one-ups her infinitely. Notice that this reward began not with God telling Elisha what to do, began with Elisha saying, what could we do to bless this woman who has blessed us? It's it's Elisha's idea. He has a heart of generosity. You've gone to all this trouble. What can be done for you? Can I speak on your behalf? It's kind of fascinating to see that Elisha had connections, as did Elijah before him, talking to the king. Elijah talked to King Ahab different times, and Elisha was a notable person as a prophet in northern Israel, and and I I don't really know what he could have done for her, but he knew that this woman didn't really need money. It wasn't a money thing, but somehow it would benefit her, and basically she says, no, not really. I have a home among my people. seems to be an expression that means I have everything I, I want right here where I live and the house I have. I'm content. A really good uh, characteristic for her as well. But uh, Elisha doesn't leave it, though. He wants to do something for her because Elisha has a generous heart as well. Uh, Someone who's serving God full-time, like himself, received the support of others, right? So he was always on the receiving end. And yet those who lead spiritually should lead in generosity as well. Elisha offers what he's able to give, and he had some connections. So... Uh, since she needs something and he doesn't want to give up, he turns to his, his, uh, his servant and says, is there anything, Gehazi, we can do for her? And then his reply, I don't know if, if Gehazi, his servant's reply, indicates faith that God could do this thing for her or just simply like, 
I don't know. She has everything she wants in life, except for a son. You know, they've, they've never been able to have children. And Elisha is at least a man of faith, and he says, that's it. Elisha says, call her. About this time next year, Elisha said, you shall hold a child in your arms. Somewhere, somehow, Elisha received a prophetic word of God as a prophet. And this is a promise. This is not just a wish or a prayer or a hope or a maybe. You are going to have a baby a year from now. By the birth announcements. By blue ones. (laughs) It's a boy. And she says, no, my Lord, my master, don't get my hopes up. It's too big of a blessing to even fathom, but God does it. And, and, and this woman, I don't know how old her husband was or how old she was or what the reasons were they couldn't conceive, but God blesses this couple with a baby boy. It's actually a kind of familiar theme in Scripture when God blesses someone who had been childless, childless for a long time with a baby. Uh, Rebecca. Mother Jacob and Esau, Hannah, who had Samuel. We'll call her Mrs. Manoah, who had Samson, Elizabeth, John the Baptist. You see this theme that God sometimes is generous in that way. God's a rewarder. I kind of wonder if Jesus had this woman in mind when he made this statement centuries later, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Maybe thinking of this woman who welcomed the prophet, Elisha. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that that person will certainly not lose the reward. God's a rewarder. It doesn't necessarily say how, but God is a Rewarder. He rewards generosity. So, does that mean that we can manipulate God kind of by being generous? Understand, God does not reward manipulation, He rewards generosity. And if our motive is what we can get, that's a greedy heart, not a generous heart. It's really the opposite thing. Uh, so, this, this woman did not do this building project because she was thinking of what she could receive. She was unconcerned about reward, but God rewards. It's that that tension of just doing what God directs us to do. I would think really what, what captured the heart of this woman would be that God had been generous to her. She was not trying to get something in the future. She was thinking of what God had done for her already in the past. We are to be responders to his grace, not someone plotting how to get something. And in fact, going back to that passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's exactly what Paul appeals to as he calls them to to generosity. After, after encouraging them, the Corinthians to give to this offering for those in need in, in, in Jerusalem, this is, his, this is his rationale, this is his motivation, because for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he's a creator of all things, living in perfect heaven, right? 
Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's the cross. So that you through his poverty, his sacrifice might become rich. So if you think about the model we have of generosity, nothing is more generous than the one who gave his only son so that we could have eternal life by faith in him. Nothing is more generous than that. And so that passage actually ends with Paul saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Giving is all about our, us reflecting what he has done for us. God rewards, but he is not promising us an endless life of blessing. And this woman soon discovered that because uh, her generosity is tested by tragedy. The child grew, verse 18, and one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told the servant, carry him to his mother. He's sick. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. They received this child from God, born, growing. They're enjoying the privilege of raising a son in their older years, an heir. And then he dies. The generosity of God had been displayed to them as parents, and they're basking in that, and then their generosity is tested. Unspeakable tragedy, the boy goes out uh, one morning to go watch the reaping, just comes around once a year, kind of a special event to go see that. Watching with her, his dad, I take it, and he's running around in the hot morning sun and all of a sudden, it gets this terrible headache. My head, my, my head, and, and some have thought, probably correctly, that this is like sunstroke or, or heat exhaustion or something. And you get dehydrated, you get dizzy, you get headaches. And it can actually be fatal if, for whatever reason, it's serious enough. Take him to his mom. So servant lifts him, carries him to his mother, and dad probably doesn't realize just how serious this could be, and... Mom holds him, and at noon he dies. We can't imagine her grief. And we have a hard time imagining, really, what she does next. Uh, normal events often don't find their way into Scripture. Exceptional faith usually does. Verse 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Remember the room, Elisha's room. Laid him on the bed and then shut the door and went out. Like, let's, this is going to be a private thing. So her, her dead son is lying on Elisha's bed. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. Is, it's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Now, that raises some questions like, does the dad know? Uh, she shuts the door, puts him on Elisha's bed, kind of indicating... 
This is Elisha's doing. This is his problem to fix. He prophesied about this child. And yet there's a piece of her that says, this is not over. I need to get to Elisha. She called her husband. Um, Maybe she just sent messages. I, I don't know, but it really does seem like the dad does not realize that their son has died. It's possible she said nothing um, because he said, why go to him today? Why go to Elisha? It's not new moon or Sabbath, by the way. This is a little parenthesis, a little historical insight here that evidently that would be something that she would normally do is to go see Elisha on the Sabbath or on a special feast day. And this is northern Israel. They're quite a ways from the temple, the priesthood during this time of of spiritual uh, chaos and rebellion of Israel. The priesthood wasn't functioning. It seems even that's why God had raised up prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And remember last week, the school of the prophets and, and training. There's 50 prophets here and 50 prophets there because it's like God is ministering to the faithful even during this time of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so it seemed like they might have had like gathering, like almost like we'd call it church gatherings where they could on the Sabbath get together and, and worship God and, 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 and try to keep the law uh, in regards to some of the special feasts uh, of, of Israel. So she's, he's basically saying, it's not Sunday. Why are you going to church? <laughs> Why are you going to go see Elisha? She maybe hid her intention from her husband because she had this Desperate but fierce faith that God might do another miracle. And she would know that to seek a resurrection was a preposterous thing to anyone, including her husband. She's not going to risk anybody talking her out of it. And so she says in verse 23, it's all right. Literally, the word is shalom. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's like an all-purpose word for hello, goodbye, how are you doing, and it's all good kind of a thing. She wasn't going to explain, but now she has a servant, and servants sat. She saddles the donkey, verse 24. It's like she doesn't even wait for him to do it. Says, we're going. Lead on. Don't slow down. The boy died at noon, and depending on where Shunem was, exactly where Elisha was, not certain, but if it's 15, some say even longer, but... 15 miles or whatever. So they're going to have to make a quick trip. This donkey's going to maybe have to gallop. Everything she does, though, indicates that she is clinging to some faith that God at least could raise her child from the dead. God had given her a miraculous birth. Could he give her a miraculous resurrection and give him back is there is there any reasonable way why she would have this kind of hope or faith there actually was because another parallel between elijah and elisha and there's quite a few another parallel was that that widow that had supplied and hosted elijah also had a son who died And God raised that son from the dead. Give me your son, Elijah replied. This is years before. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought this tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? 
Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Very likely, this woman in Shunem knew this story. It would make perfect sense because obviously Elisha knew this story because Elisha was a protege of Elijah. So Elijah will have told Elisha all about it. So Elisha knew it. And, and if you are Elisha and you're staying on a regular basis with this couple and you have this fellowship and appreciation, then, well, certainly you would bring up a story like that. So this woman, I would think, would have known this story. And it built her faith that God could do this. By the way, this is, this is why it's so important that we hear each other's stories of faith. This is why it's so important that we, that we gather together. You, you should know a lot of people and their stories of how God's at work in their life. We need that to grow our faith. And, um, so this woman knew about this other lady and this other resurrection, so she is pursuing this. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. This is a determined woman of faith, and I just kind of imagine this servant going with her. I don't know if he knew anything, what was really going on, but kind of a deer in the headlights look saying, whatever, ma'am, we're going. Verse 25. So they set out, so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he, Elisha, saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's a Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's all right, she said. Shalom. When she reached the man of God of the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Now it comes out, everything's not all right. Took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Then she blurts it out. Did I ask for a son, my Lord? She said, Didn't I tell you? Don't raise my hopes. <laughs> Gehazi goes to meet her at Elisha's instructions. Is the child all right? And she totally blows him off. It's fine, she says with clenched teeth. I want to talk to the manager. And she took hold of his feet when she arrived and crumbles in grief. And all the pent-up emotions of that incredible day come tumbling out. Starting with when the servant showed up with her sick boy in his arms and the fears that cascaded through her as she watched him take his last breath confusion and grief that she had channeled for hours as she perhaps hides it from her husband and pushes a pace to Mount Carmel and falls at his feet Elisha sees her coming but God didn't show him Ahead of time, he has to hear it when, he, when the Gehazi, the servant, does. And it comes tumbling out, it's your fault. I didn't ask for this. doesn't even tell us how she told him the story. We just get to feel her grief. To this point, this woman has done everything right. God had blessed her. 
In response to God's generosity, she was generous to build this room for Elisha. And God, in his amazing generosity, being the rewarder he is, had given her the, the child of her dreams. He was growing. They were loving it. It just was going according to the script that we would expect of God, right? Until it doesn't. If you lost somebody close, you know too well what this woman was feeling. There are no words. You can't even recognize or identify your emotions. There's a wall of silence about the future. You've you've lost this person you love. The rewards of our unseen boss uh, are kind of confusing sometimes. They don't come when we expect. We're going we're gonna to read about the miracle God does yet, but you've got to grasp the questioning of her heart that is in pain like this. We don't write the story of our life so that if we live generously, that then there's this unending bliss. It's really just a walk that you begin of trusting God. That, that's what God rewards, is that daily trust that whatever's going on in our life, it doesn't, it doesn't all add up. We, can, we can't equate everything. We don't write the script. If you, if you read anything in scriptures consistently, you realize that no one makes God dance to their tune. And so as we, as we discover again the, the generosity of God, how he confirms it, don't like start plotting your own success story. Oh, so if I do this, then I get to do this, and then God's going to do this. Because true generosity is not motivated by what we hope to get. True generosity is birthed in the appreciation of the grace of God to us. Gratitude for the past, trust for the future. And, and in that confusing, hurtful, in-between stuff, we hang on to God and know that he cares. God cared. Elisha cared. Jesus wept when he showed up at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who had just died, his friends. Verse 29, Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand, and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. In other words, don't just send your servant. So he, Elisha, got up and followed her. So Gehazi runs ahead, and Elisha and this woman follow. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet them, Elisha, and told him, the boy has not awakened. It's rare to see a prophet try something that doesn't work. Go lay my staff on his face, and he does, and they meet halfway as Gehazi comes back and says, nothing. The boy has not awakened. 
we're supposed to notice. We're supposed to know this little detail. We're supposed to notice what doesn't work. We're supposed to notice that Elisha had limited knowledge in verse 27. He, God didn't reveal to him what's going to happen, what this woman is coming for. God didn't give him power the way he thought he would through the staff. The boy's not awakened. We, 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 we don't want to be putting our trust in the prophets or the spiritual leaders. They, they know it all. It seemed that, that Elisha at least hoped the staff would work. He thought it would. Was he thinking of Moses' staff? But he struck out this time. For some reason, Elisha, the woman, both servants, and everybody in this room was supposed to realize you can't make God do it your way. You can't induce God to do something miraculous. We are totally dependent upon the power of God and the will of God, which means the timing of God. So, verse 32, Elisha keeps going. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon, the, upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. He came to life. I, I can't ex explain all the reasons for each part of that. Uh, why did he lay on him? He would have known the story. Elijah did the same thing with the boy of the widow of Zarephath. But this part we understand. He went in, shut the door, and prayed. That we can do. Prayed in utter dependence. We pray about needs, desires, wishes. Is it a very unique thing for God to answer a prayer about resurrection? Absolutely. Is it a very unique thing for God to answer prayer? No. The Bible records 10 resurrections, if we're counting right, in the Bible, including the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead, so that leaves nine. Of those nine, four of them were miracles of resurrection that Jesus himself did in the Gospels, so that leaves five. One of them the remaining five, one of the five is something we'll look at, a unique occasion in First King, Second Kings 13. That leaves four. Four resurrections that came at the words of a prophet or an apostle. We already looked at Elijah, now this is Elisha, Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament, uh, Peter and then Paul in the book of Acts. So praying for resurrection, if you're not an apostle or a prophet, might not be what God wants us to do. We rest in the truth of Hebrews 9.27. It says, it is appointed to man to die once, and after that, the judgment. Uh, coming back to life is not God's normal way with humanity yet. But it will be, right? 
Daniel 12, 2 says that everyone is going to be raised either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. Everybody will be resurrected. But on this exceptional day, during this life on this earth with these bodies, God did this exceptional thing so that we know he can when he promises that he will. He lays himself on this child gets warm, sneezes. I love that. Only if eyewitness would know that. Breath suddenly comes from these, these cold, still lungs, and the same God that breathed life into, into Adam breathes life into this boy that day. It reminded me, though, of the miracle of life that God gives most of us have experienced in a delivery room someplace, right? Where you hear that baby's first cry. And if that doesn't make you say, God gives life, I don't know what will. God's the giver of life. And so miracles of God's generosity are sitting between adults and running around in our foyers and in your homes every day. There's no magic in Elijah's staff, it turns out, right? There's no magic even in the, in the fact that he laid on the, on the boy. The power was all God's. Elisha prayed, and God answered. We trust God with his generosity. And then the last verses tell us, I think, the main point of why God is generous to the generous. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came in, just picture this. He said, take your son. I need a video of the next moments, right? She came in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. She worshipped. That's the point. God is to be worshipped for his generosity to us. I don't think she was at all bowing to worship Elisha. She had fallen at the feet of Elisha when she showed up with her concern about his, her boy's death. And now she bows in worship of God. That's what God is seeking when he's generous to us. Worship. Worship. We, we worship when we sing. We're supposed to. We, we, don't, we don't take all these minutes to have spiritual entertainment. There's an opportunity for us to worship God for all he's done for us. We worship when we tell one another what God's doing in our life. We worship when we give dollars or serve with hours of time. It, it's all a response to his generosity to us and and, and, and the full circle that God intends for generosity is, is, is brought together when we give him worship. What does God desire that he doesn't have? The, the, the only blank is whether or not we will worship him and be one of those. Once more to Paul where he culminated his, kind of his treatise on uh, generosity. God's glory is the goal. 
The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people. See, sometimes our giving is, is like all about they need it, I have it, I give it to them. The missionary now is supplied for the person who has a financial need can pay their bills. Oh, he says, much bigger than that. But it's overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. You responded to Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The purpose was that God would be pleased. God would be glorified. God would be honored. So let's do a little bit of evaluation of what God might be doing in your life in terms of generosity. Just seven, seven questions. Do you see God as generous? In other words, as you picture the nature of God, the traits of God, do you, do you think of how good, how gracious he is to you? I think that's why we have this section of miracles in Second Kings. The goodness, the generosity of God. Do you picture him that way? Because what we're going through at the time can often cloud our view of God. I get that. So we need this constant reminder of his goodness. So, so what is it that causes you to see his generosity to you? How has he been gracious, generous to you? Be a, be a healthy spiritual exercise to think that through. And then to say to yourself, okay, in what ways am I currently being generous? Am I imitating my father? And there's so many ways to be generous. What, how are you being generous in response to God? And, and in what ways does your generosity reflect that you trust him? Because you don't always know. You don't know the sequence. You aren't signing up for a reward plan. You're trusting him. And is there any idea or area of generosity God is speaking to you about currently? Is there like, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He just he prompts and moves and sometimes you need to check with others. You know, I would say this, if you're married, you really need to be together on whatever generosity you want to do. Are there any selfish motives tainting your generosity? I mean, we are sinners, right? So our best ideas sometimes can be tainted by, what's in it for me? Do I get a plaque with that? <laughs> and then finally, how could your giving better glorify God? What is it that need to be refined altered, changed in terms of how God is moving you in this journey of generosity. Our boss is not undercover, but he is unseen. And uh, he is always faithful. He's always good. He's always faithful. And we, we trust him and just do our job. Do our, live generously well and can be sure that he is pleased and will say, well done. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your 
an amazing plan that you so love the world, sinners like us, that you gave your only son the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to offer us eternal life if we would believe in him and what he did for us on that cross, paying for our sin, that you would give us free, you would give us eternal life. I pray for any hearing this right now that have not placed their faith in you alone, that you died for their sins and rose again. They would first experience your generosity by choosing to trust you for eternal life freely. And then, Lord, I pray for each of us who have received that eternal life gift, that we would reflect it in, in, in our attitudes and our, our actions of living generously to imitate your great grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.